The uh, scripture reading today comes from Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Uh, I'm going to emphasize verses five, or, uh, chapter 5, verse uh, 7 through 12. It's also printed on page 8 of your bulletin. I'm going to read that for us this morning. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Metro. If you're uh, new or you're visiting, we want to thank you so much for coming. We know it's not easy to sacrifice uh, your weekend to come here, but we are very glad that you are here. Uh, last week, we had our Vision Sunday, and uh, for those of you who weren't able to make it, um, it was a service dedicated to sharing the values and the vision of Metro, where we came from, where we are now, and where we're uh, hoping to go. And it was, such a, it was a great time of sharing, celebration, and remembrance of how faithful and gracious God has been to us. And we're very excited that you are here and a part of it. And um, we hope that it doesn't just end with Vision Sunday. We hope that you would share also with your friends and family continually. Uh, the week before that, we started a sermon series called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to continue that series today. And uh, you're going to hear the phrase, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, quite often in, in this series. Uh, so first of all... What is it? If you'd ask the vast majority of people walking down the streets of Philadelphia who Jesus was and uh, what they thought of him, you'd probably hear answers such as he was a religious leader, um, he was a good teacher, he taught many good vir virtues and values, um, he was a moral example. And uh, that might be some of your answers here today about Jesus as well. Um, all these moral teachings and values that uh, these, these people would answer are referring to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's, it's a, it refers to a set of teachings. Um, teachings such as, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him also the left. Or, do not be anxious about life. Or, judge not, so that you might not be judged. These are all very familiar these moral teachings, these, these phrases are all the things that we've heard before, and the Sermon on the Mount is where they actually all came from. And the reason why we wanted to venture through this series is because a lot of these teachings are actually misunderstood. In fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount, all the teachings of Jesus are very often misinterpreted. We're missing the entire point. And if you've asked the same people uh, who gave these answers to you um, that Jesus was a good teacher, a moral uh, example, if they've ever read the Bible, I'd probably guess that the majority of them would have probably said no. Um, because if, if you do have the chance to read the Bible, you, you cannot come away thinking that Jesus was simply a good moral teacher. There's no way. Because if because he didn't simply teach that uh, you should turn the, turn the other cheek or you must not judge others. His main message 
was that he was the Son of God, that he was God. C.S. Lewis, the author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and a great apologist of his time, uh, he said this, and I'm going to paraphrase. He said that there is no way that you can come away thinking that Jesus was simply a good teacher. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Son of God. In other words, Lewis is saying that you cannot have a neutral stance on Jesus. You either have to dismiss him as a liar or a crazy person or worship him as the Son of God. One thing that I think we can all agree on is that Jesus was a revolutionary, but he was much more than that. In our passage today, Jesus teaches a set of sayings called the Beatitudes, which can be translated as happy or blessed. But honestly, I don't, I don't think those words really capture and convey the, the real meaning of what Jesus is trying to say here. I think a better translation might be successful. So if you'd retranslate our passage, it sounds something like this. Successful are the poor. Successful are those who mourn, grieve, and lament. Successful are the meek, the humble, and gentle. Successful are the hungry and thirsty. Successful are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Successful are those who are persecuted, insulted, and reviled. And you're probably thinking the same thing as the original hearers probably thought. Bruh, this ain't it. Jesus, I know what you're talking about. I don't know what kind of idea of success you have in your head, but this, this ain't it. Jesus was indeed a revolutionary. And what he was doing with these beatitudes was that he was flipping the values and criteria of success that this world has completely upside down. Essentially, he's saying that the things that are valued and sought after in society today are not the same as in the kingdom of God. In fact, the things valued in this world are least important in the kingdom of God. And in our passage today, we're going we're gonna to zone in on the idea of mercy. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What, what does that mean? And I have three points to navigate us through this message. First, the first point is, what is mercy? The second is, why is it a requirement in the kingdom of God? And uh, lastly, how do you become merciful? What is mercy? Why is it a requirement in the kingdom of God? And how do you become merciful? So the first point, what is mercy? Or you can even ask the question, what does a merciful person look like? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's start with what mercy is not. And I think we in Western culture, we have a very different idea of what mercy is. We have a very different view of mercy. Remember that game called Mercy you played in middle school or high school where you're grabbing the other person's hand and you're like twisting and, and, and contorting it as much as possible and, you're, and the point of it is try to cause as much pain to the other person as possible until they're like, stop, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. It's such a stupid game. Um, and in this game, mercy is seen as the ability to exercise enough power over someone until they come to the realization that they are unable to beat you. The tap out in wrestling or MMA are examples of this. Some MMA fighters are so unwilling to ask for mercy that they'd rather be knocked out cold than tap out. In the movie The Karate Kid, I'm talking about the original one, not this one with Jaden Smith, 
which he's actually learning kung fu, not karate, so I don't know why it's called kung fu, kid. The master of the Cobra Kai dojo, John Kreese, the antagonist, says this. We do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. A man confronts you. He is the enemy. An enemy deserves no mercy. And this sounds ridiculous, but honestly, isn't this how the world is? It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. In the business world, you're taught to be cutthroat. You can't be too nice or you're going to get trampled on. You'll never move up the ladder if you're not ruthless in your approach. Mercy is something that we don't even like in our sports teams. On the basketball court, we want assassins. We want those with killer instinct. We want Kobe Bryant. Athletes that are too nice are given the worst insult of all. Soft. Soft like a teddy bear. And you might like soft in your significant other, but not on my basketball court. I don't want soft men playing basketball. The world, it does value compassion. It does value mercy. And we see all kinds of acts of kindness. Um, but However, I'd argue that the worldly concept of mercy does not go deep enough. It's like the kiddie pool. You're standing in there. There's water, but it's not enough for you to be covered by it. Mercy, uh, it means being concerned about people in their need, expressing kindness for someone in need, compassion, sympathy, looking to others, outward-facing rather than being self-absorbed. But there's an extent to this in society. And we see that in our own lives. We're generous with our likes and shares on Facebook, yet when it, when it comes to putting your money where your mouth is, compassion runs dry. For those of us who have money, we're, we're willing to, to, to fund things. We gladly give our money, yet when it talks about when, uh, when we're called to um, take the time and the effort to invest into these things, to contribute, you'd rather just throw money at it and be done with it. However, Jesus' view of mercy goes much, much deeper. He's essentially saying that genuine mercy and compassion means to put the successes of others in front of your own. And in this individualistic society that we live in, it sounds all well and good, but it doesn't really fly until we're, when we're called upon it. We just we don't want to do it. And if we're being completely honest, mercy, our version of mercy, is shown when there's no cost to ourselves. It's okay up to a certain point to show compassion, but when we reach that limit, we stop. However, that is not mercy. Mercy without self-sacrifice is not mercy. Genuine and compassionate acts of mercy always happen at a cost, and it's very closely related to forgiveness. Forgiveness is not free. It always comes at a cost to the one forgiving. And Jesus provides us a, a perfect example, possibly of the most widely known Bible story in all the world, the Good Samaritan. And I'm sure some of you haven't heard this before, so I'm going to quickly read this for us. Uh, one occasion, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? 
He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, and who, uh, but, but wanting to justify himself, uh, so he said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said this, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where this man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And I I can't provide much detail about this story, but there's one thing that I did want to point out. Uh, And that's the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans, absolutely, they they hated one another. They were enemies. They didn't deal with with each other at all. And I think it's the equivalent of the hatred between the Eagles fans and Cowboys fans. I hate Cowboys fans and the Cowboys. Nothing made me happier than seeing them lose to the Rams. But in all seriousness, it was bad. It was really bad. It was so bad that at the end of this story, the expert in the law, this Jewish man, couldn't even mention the Samaritan by name. But instead, he identified him as the one who had mercy. And in this story, you got two Jewish religious leaders who were unwilling to come to this Jewish brother's aid Yet it was the Samaritan who came and had compassion on him. And there was great risk in helping this man who was robbed and beaten. The Samaritan, he risked his reputation in associating himself with the enemy. He could have been beaten and robbed as well as as he was helping this man. He spent two days taking care of him, so he was two days behind on his journey. And the money that he spent on the inn was worth two full days of work. And he was willing to even give more. This act of mercy came at a great cost for the Samaritan. And this is the extent of mercy and compassion that Jesus is speaking of. True mercy comes at a cost. Are you willing to exemplify this kind of costly compassion to other people? That leads me to my second point. Why is it a requirement to the kingdom of God? So the first point, what is mercy? Second point, why is it a requirement in the kingdom of God? And uh, something that we've all done before or will soon do is uh, have a job interview. Uh, Some of you might actually be going through job interviews now. You're in the process of looking for a new job. And in most interviews, almost all the time is spent looking at credentials, combing through your resume, your degrees, uh, your past projects, asking you to solve problems, or they even take your physical appearance into account. However, very little time is, is, uh, is put to assessing your personality or your character. 
They, they simply want to see what you're capable of, what you've done in the past, what expertise you can bring to the table. But smart and keen companies, they spend more time assessing character rather than competence. And all this, it plays into the culture of the company. By and large, you, one tell of the company's culture can simply be found through an interview process. Are they strictly, strictly looking at your ability, credentials, or are they actually spending the time to assess your personality and your character? If it's just the ability, you'll likely have a very arrogant and narcissistic work culture because I've received an offer because of what I've done, my credentials, my skills. Um, I was smart, I was intelligent, qualified enough to work here, and I, I don't need your help. However, if uh, there's an assessment of character, the company will likely have a much more teachable and nurturing work culture because they're willing to compromise a little bit of ability for a more teachable and mature working professional. But again, companies like the latter are really, really rare, and by and large, um, corporations and companies are looking for credentials, degrees, and ability. However, in the kingdom of God, it's counter-cultural. Counter-cultural, counter to culture. Jesus is not interested in your ability or skills. He's interested in your heart and your character. Uh, it flips the values of this world upside down. And I know this can be difficult to comprehend because our entire lives are built on what we've done, what we've built, the skills that we have, the abilities that we have, in the Beatitude, Jesus is not talking about doing. Rather, he's talking about being. And one crucial way to reveal the heart is by looking at the way in which mercy is exemplified uh, in the life of an individual. And like I said in the previous point, true mercy and compassion comes at a cost. Compassion that costs nothing is not compassion. It may be even be self-serving to a certain extent. When Jesus began to eat and spend time with uh, the modern-day prostitutes, the partiers, the drunkards, the drug dealers, the lost, and the social outcasts, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the time, they asked him, or they asked his disciples, why does he eat with these people? Doesn't he know what they've done and they, what they continue to do? On, contrary to what people believed, Jesus actually spent most of his time with these kind of people, the outcasts and the lost, and they loved to be around Jesus. Jesus responded to these religious leaders saying, learn what this is. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. He charged the Pharisees of being completely immaculate in their religious duties, their tithing, their Sunday attendance, their morally clean life, yet they were completely devoid of mercy and compassion. They despised people like these social outcasts, like the morally unrighteous. These religious leaders, they may have, uh, they've been perfect in their ability, their righteous rituals, their sacrifices and their works, yet they lacked true and genuine character. They had no compassion and care. And, the, and even in the ways that they probably did show compassion and care, it was more for their own benefit, to pad their own stats. And I want to challenge my Christian friends here. Do you spend time showing compassion and mercy so that others can see? 
Does your care for others extend further than what you post on Instagram, the dinners, the gatherings that you have, or do you truly and genuinely embody kindness even when no one is watching? To your immediate family members, which might be the hardest, to your spouse, to your children, to your coworkers. Going back to the story of the Good Samaritan, we see the inner character shown in this man who out of all those mentioned in the story, the Samaritan was the one who sacrificed his safety, his reputation, his money in this act of mercy. Now to challenge you all, are you living a life that exudes compassion and mercy? Because I think we can all agree that whether you're Christian or still searching, we need truly, we need more truly compassionate and gracious people in this world. Do these values, do they reflect your life? Are they consistent with your character regardless of your circumstance? Or are the values that you bring here to church the same values that you reflect in your workplace and in your school? These kingdom values might reflect in your life here, but are you seeking to be only associated with the, the top people, the impressive people at your workplace or school? Or are you looking to befriend those who, who may not be at the top, those who may even diminish your reputation, those who can't offer you anything or help you to get ahead? And if this isn't the case for you, aren't you just using people then at the end of the day? for your own advancement. Genuine mercy and compassion means to put the successes of others in front of your own. And that is radically, radically different. It's a completely different criteria of success. And this becomes a reflection of your character. This is why it is a requirement in the kingdom of God. The weight of your character is more valuable than the glamour of your ability and competence in the kingdom of God. And that leads us to my final point. How do you become merciful? How do you get in? How do you get this characteristic of mercy in your life? And you know it's funny how experiences work. Some of us have come from very legalistic and sheltered backgrounds like myself. And when I was a kid, when I saw someone drinking alcohol, I was like, oh my God, you're a sinner. This guy's drunk. And I was judging hardcore, but when I became of age and I had a sip of a cocktail, I was like, mmm, this stuff's pretty good. And that's a really stupid example, but uh, how do you become merciful? And this is what I'm trying to get at. The reality is that you can only become merciful and compassionate when you first see your own mercy or your own need for mercy and you experience it in your own life. Now that I think about it, that example was really stupid. It didn't like really match up with this. But anyways, the reality is that you can only become merciful and compassionate when you first see your own need for mercy and experience it in your own life. You know, it's not too hard to fake a compassionate heart for a while, but eventually you're going to be found out as a fraud, someone who really doesn't care for other people. You just, you just kind of care about yourself. You're self-absorbed. You just want people to like you. You just want people to respect you. You want to get in with a certain crowd of people. You want to use people to get somewhere or get something. 
those who find no need for mercy or have not yet experienced it, they don't have the capacity of being truly merciful. And in this, there are two types of people, two categories of people, by and large. People, one, people who know that they need it, but they don't feel like they deserve it, or feel they feel too far gone, that they first need to work themselves up to a certain point, to a certain place where you're okay and acceptable. That's one side. The other side is people who, who say that they need it, but on the inside, they truly don't believe that they do. Self-loathing on one side and prideful on the other. But if you really think about it, they're, they're actually the same thing. Both these types of people are trying to work their, their way to a place where mercy isn't needed. For those who resonate with the first type, those who feel too far gone, that they first need to feel like you need to work yourself up to a good place, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that entering into the kingdom of God is not about qualifications. It's not about being rich or poor, educated or not educated, moral or immoral, good or bad. Rather, it hinges on whether you're proud or humble. In fact, although you may not think it, those who resonate with this first category still have pride because essentially what you're saying is, I don't need mercy. I'm going to work my place, I'm going to work, uh, my place back on my, by myself. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to go to church consistently. I'm, not, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to try to be a better person. But that's not what the kingdom of God is about. That's not what the gospel is about. That's what the world is about. Man up. Pull yourself up. You got to do it. You got to suck it up. But this isn't the gospel. The gospel is about coming before Jesus humbly, knowing that all you've done and all that you will ever do will always be inadequate that you are in desperate need of mercy and grace no matter how hard you try. Those who fall in the second type, those who publicly say, uh, yeah, I'm in need of mercy, but deep down inside you, you truly don't believe it, that we're actually good people. You know, I challenge again my Christian friends here because often we, de- we deceive ourselves into forgetting just how self-absorbed we really are. We think, yeah, I know that Jesus died for me, but honestly, who wouldn't? I'm a great person. I'm a good Christian. Jesus calls all of us to repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is admitting that your whole life is permeated with self-centeredness. I'm not just saying, it's not just saying that I've done bad things. Everyone has done bad things. But it's realizing that even your good deeds, even your very best deeds, are self-centered and self-absorbed. That at the end of the day, it's all about you. And that's not compassion. Regardless of where you fall in the spectrum, we all are in need of mercy. And what we have to understand is this. That the need for mercy is not an individual diagnosis. It's a human diagnosis. We all need it, regardless of who you are. 
and there's only one way to receive it. If you look at the life of Jesus, he exuded compassion. He was filled to the brim with mercy and grace for others. And he not only loved them with all, with all his heart, he defended them and he bound himself with them. He sought after those who didn't dis- dis- deserve mercy and he poured love and grace upon them. He came to the defense of a prostitute moments before religious leaders were ready to hurl stones at her. He transformed the life of a woman who had nothing, no money, no family, no husband, no friends. She traveled to the well uh, to, to, to draw water at the hottest time of the day just so that she wouldn't have to face the disgrace of the other women in the town. However, Jesus poured grace and mercy into her life and changed her to the point where she no longer cared about what other people thought. And she ran into town and she said, she proclaimed, Come see this man who told me all that I've ever done, all the brokenness in my life. He rocked the world of a tax collector who everyone hated because he was a sleazy businessman who made a living off of ripping off his own people. And while he remained unseen by the people around him, Jesus came, came to him, saw him, and and he said in front of all the crowds, Zacchaeus, come, I must stay at your house. This act of mercy rocked him so deeply that he vowed to give half his wealth to the poor and not only to pay back all the people that he ripped off, but pay them four times more than he took. Even to his betrayer, Judas Iscariot, to the very end, he loved him and invited him in even to the most intimate meal of his life, the Last Supper, even when he knew that this man would stab him in the back to the very end. None of these people deserved this kind of mercy. Yet, Jesus expressed mercy to the utmost. He was the only human being who needed no mercy because he was completely blameless. He was the only person who deserved to be blessed. According to our passage, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will receive mercy. He loved with all of himself. Yet, when he needed mercy, when he was accused of crimes he did not commit, when he was uh, was called to a punishment that he did not deserve, he did not receive mercy. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Hours hours before he would be arrested and eventually crucified, he cried, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup of wrath and suffering be taken from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. He received no mercy. And as he was hanging, crucified on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he was saying was, I have nothing. I am empty. I've poured out all, that, all the compassion and mercy that I've had, and now I am completely empty. Yet, I have not received mercy or compassion, but rather I have received God's full and unrestrained wrath and punishment. 
Christ was merciful and compassionate and great and uh, gracious, not so that he would receive mercy, but so that he would become mercy for us. Although he deserved to be blessed, he became a curse so that we would be blessed. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, still enemies of God, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, while we despised Him, while we disrespected Him, He still died for us. Do you see the great cost of His mercy for us? Do you see the character of Jesus Christ? He was the ultimate good Samaritan. But instead of risking his life to rescue this man, Jesus Christ gave up his life to rescue you and me. Instead of paying with money to secure this man's stay at the inn, Jesus paid with his blood to secure us entrance into the kingdom of God. Although Jesus called for mercy, not sacrifice, he displayed both mercy and sacrifice. Jesus took on the punishment and wrath of God that we deserved, and we received the blessing and mercy of God that He deserved. This is the gospel, and it is not by anything that we've done or can ever accomplish. So when we read, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, we are reminded that we received mercy only because Christ completely fulfilled this call to be merciful to the utmost. And it is only when we see this mercy and compassion and grace of Christ for us that we can show mercy and compassion to other people. When you're equipped with the mercy of Jesus Christ, when you've received the ultimate gift of compassion and grace, you've been given freedom. Freedom to no longer be so self-absorbed, to be inward-facing. Freedom from working and failing to get to a place where you've finally proven yourself and to others that you're good enough. Freedom to gladly accept the mercy of Jesus Christ. And when you realize the great cost that Jesus paid in becoming your source of great mercy. And when you see that his mercy for you is more abundant than the water in the ocean, you can genuinely, now, genuinely provide mercy and compassion, even at your own cost. You now have freedom and power to effect real change, not only in your life, but in the life of those around you. Christ believed that, that true success meant putting the successes of others in front of your own. And this is completely countercultural, and that's what he did. He put your success, he put our success at the cost of his own, even when we did not deserve it. Friends, look to Jesus Christ not only as a good teacher, not as a moral example not even just as a revolutionary, but look to him as your merciful, loving, and gracious Savior. Let's pray.